This podcast is a quest for well-being, a quest for a meaningful life through the exploration of fundamental truths, enlightening ideas, insights on physical, mental, and spiritual health. The inspiration is love. The aspiration is to awaken new ways of thinking that can lead us to a new way of being. Being well. Welcome to Body, Mind, and Soul Healing Conversations. It is okay not to be okay sometimes, but it is never okay to not ask for help because you are precious beyond compare. You are loved and you are never alone. Valeria Tellez interviews Danielle Aiken, the author of The Ripples, What Lies Beyond and Sarah's Story, Life After IVF. A highly experienced nurse and midwife, Danielle Aiken spent 20 years working at the cutting edge of IVF in Australia. Now a counselor and clinical hypnotherapist running a successful private practice, she helps clients move through trauma and crisis. She is passionate about mind-body therapy, the principles of neuroplasticity, and helping people discover their true potential. Danielle is the author of Sarah's Story, Life After IVF, and The Ripples, what Lies Beyond, books written to tackle serious issues impacting mental and physical health. Both are fictional, inspirational narratives about self-discovery, human potential, and overcoming adversity. Both became number one Amazon bestsellers in their categories, indicating the real need for these important messages delivered through the power and potential of written word. Suicide often creates a path of devastation so far-reaching that it continues on and on, like the ripples created in the mirror-perfect body of water after a single calamitous event disturbs the calm forever. The Ripples is a fictional novel written by Danielle Aiken, which provides a gripping account of one family's experience of suicide and the damaging, relentless ripples that radiate out in every direction not only on a family in crisis, but on a whole community and beyond, while also exploring the possibility of an omnipresent love that connects us all. Thought-provoking and insightful, The Ripples weaves a powerful story of spirituality, love, tragic loss, and the amazing resilience we possess that allows us to bring ourselves back from the depths of despair to carry on living. It powerfully illustrates how nobody is spared from the heartbreak and the what-if thoughts, feelings, and regrets. A captivating story that explores many causative factors and highlights that we can do to create a change in our current culture through the transformational power of love and connection. Danielle believes that suicide can no longer be considered a taboo subject, rather She believes that suicide must be spoken about in loud voices as we as a community attempt to save lives. One death by suicide is too many. And at the time of writing The Ripples, the World Health Organization estimated that we are losing 800,000 people a year worldwide to suicide. 
The Ripples is an important book to create more conversations about mental health awareness, a story to highlight the resources that are available, and to create conversations to help and heal. Importantly, it is a story to validate those who have experienced this most devastating of human tragedies and to highlight the resilience and strength required to continue on when all seems hopelessly lost. The Ripples illustrates the importance of teaching our children that it's okay to not be okay all of the time, as it promotes the idea that it is not only okay to speak about our struggles, it's essential. We must lose the stigma around mental health issues in order to save lives. Meet Danielle at danielleakenauthor.com.au. Here is the interview with Danielle Aiken. In your own words, who is Danielle Aitken? Danielle Aitken is a um, eternal soul having a human experience. Um, I am a healer. I have been involved in my career in many healing modalities from nursing and midwifery, um, IVF, and more recently in counselling and clinical hypnotherapy and a lot of spiritual work. So I'm a very spiritual person. Um, and I believe that I, you know, this this lifetime I came into this world to to help others. That seems it's it seemed to be a knowing for me from when I, um, you know, from my earliest memories that I just wanted to help people. So that's that's kind of been the direction of my life, and I'm. I'm very, very fulfilled at the moment with my work in what I do in helping people um, overcome adversity and achieve their goals. So uh, that's, yeah, I suppose if I were to sum it up, I'd say I'm a spiritual soul and I'm a healer. So I have these warm-up questions, as you know. The first one is, what do you want from life at this time, Danielle? From at this time, I would you know, I seek peace. Um, that would be my my main want at the moment. And as much as possible, I find that in, in my life. Um, I think I have evolved so much as we all do with every experience we have. And I've reached a point where I am completely satisfied to just be me and to be me with integrity and and um, happy enough to to be able to stand and and speak the way I speak which perhaps I wouldn't have done a while before you know when I was perhaps not so confident in who I am so at this point in my life yeah I seek I seek peace I don't I don't need other people's approval I'm just happy I'm happy to live my life near the ocean and in nature and and just enjoy the beauty of the world. I have to ask you this question. What is your suggestions or advice for getting to this place of confidence, of self-love, of self-acceptance? I think it's a, it's a journey we're all on in various ways and it does come with awareness, I think. 
um, that's one of the key things I, I discuss with my clients is awareness. When we're aware of anything, it really puts us in the driver's seat. So then we, we're empowered to make choices as soon as we are aware. And I think the realisation of um, what it is you want and, and it, you know, there's so many people I feel that are chasing um, material possessions and trying to find happiness in material ways and happiness will never be found in material things. It has to come from within. It has to come from the soul. It has to come from, you know, seeking peace. Um, it, it doesn't come from the material world. So I think I would advise people, and again, this is what I try to do, is create uh, or try to help others find that awareness, um, which I've had to find myself, and it, and very much comes from being in this moment and enjoying this moment because really this is the only moment that we have, you know. So a lot of so many people are in this moment, but they're not in this moment. They're they're busy, you know, being in the future or worrying about the past. And, um, and so I choose to, as much as possible, not do those things. I choose, you know, I've had plenty of my time doing those things, yeah. but now I choose to be very present. This practice, this realization, this understanding of the present moment, do you connect that with the sense of peace, inner peace? Oh, completely, completely. Um, I Actually, before we were having this conversation, I had a minute or two and I was just sitting, um, taking a breath and enjoying the minute that I had. Um, so I think, yeah, definitely confidence and inner peace go hand in hand. I had a, I had a beautiful experience with a, um, on a mindfulness retreat with a lovely professor, uh, one of our local fellows down in Australia. Um, and he taught me a lot about mindfulness and, and being present. And he's one of the most beautiful people, the most peaceful people I know. So I, I learned a lot from him. And before any event, he would just take a moment. He, he said to punctuate our day with, with pauses. And um, so before anything, before a meeting, before a phone call, before anything, he, he, he just used to take a breath, a mindful minute. And, um, you know, I, my background is um, nursing midwifery, so I understand the physiology in the body too. And just taking that breath connects us to a part of our nervous system that allows the whole body just to, just to relax. It tells the body we're safe. So I think when we can be mindful, it allows us to, um, you know, it sends that message to the body. It allows the body to relax too. So everything everything's connected mind and body there's no separation so what is the meaning of death to you danielle the meaning of losing the body death yeah. um well i believe and as i've written in my book that death is not um the an end it's an it's an end to what we know it's an end to what we see here in in this realm and in humanity but i very much what i tried to portray in my book was uh, a picture of what death really is and it's almost like um a duality really it's we in who we are i mean we have our human existence but we also have 
our eternal soul. So we're here, I believe, to experience life in this body that we walk around in. And um, But the soul that inhabits that body is, you know, has inhabited many bodies, many lifetimes. So I believe that that, that soul is a... Uh, a loving presence that's connected to all things and it's just not visible to us here in in this life that we're living this um, human life although having said that I also believe there's an awakening where people are becoming more and more aware um, spiritual people more and more so that um, you know there there is no death as such I uh, I have it experienced physical death within my family, of course, as many of us have, but I feel so connected still to those people who um, who are, you know, all around me. And I think that, I think we're connected. I think it's important for us to, when we know that, to, to look out for the signs because they can't, they can't be here for us physically, but they can be here. They can, I get a, I get a little, tap on the shoulder when I see, you know, an eagle flying by or a butterfly, they're my signs that, you know, I'm on the right track and and I feel connected to those people who have passed. And I just get a sense of it because I think the love, and, and this is also one of the things I wanted to portray in the book, that the love that we have here in this earthly realm for um, you know, the people we're walking the earth with, that love never dies. So that love exists a hundredfold on the other side after death. I, I almost get a sense of almost like a mirror, if you like, you know, this this side of the mirror where we're witnessing the the humanity, but just on the other side, and, and perhaps we're even wondering, you know, who am I? But it's almost like a reflection on the other side of the mirror where we know I am, you know, a reversal of who am I? I am, I am, I am an eternal soul. I am, I am the personification of love. I am, you know, love. I am that love embodied in a human presence. So, and, and I, and I get a sense of an absolute connection after death, you know, where, where there is no separation and, and where, and I think that, you know, we can, we can, strive to to get a sense of that here and when we do I think it's magnificent there's a um you know I think we can we can feel that love we can I do a lot of meditation um we've spoken before about that um and I do a lot of heart meditation and when we focus on the heart science now tells us that there's an energy field that is created around our body that just expands and you know, when we're when we're focusing on that, the heart energy is such a strong energy, and it it permeates beyond our body, so that our you know this loving essence we can we can affect others with our love here by by you know focusing on that and expanding that. And and uh, my practice is I do that every day, and I feel it in every cell of my body, and it's it's quite amazing. So that's I've I've wound around around a little bit, but but I guess um, to just to um, say just to summarize, yeah. I don't I don't believe in death. Right. <laughs> I believe in death of the body, not death of the soul. I wonder why so many of us 
don't tap into this knowing. Do you sometimes wonder why so many of us? Yeah, I, I, it's interesting. I, I, as I said before, I think there's been a real awakening. Um, there's a shift in consciousness. I truly believe that. And I, and I wonder whether it is part of that not knowing, whether it is part of that um, human experience that we're here to experience, that we do have this disconnection from the source when we come here. I, I think it's something that develops. I don't think that children necessarily have it. Little ones, babies, and up to the young age of maybe two or three, they seem more connected. It, I, I get a sense that they, they're still connected to the other side more than we are. Um, they, they can see things that we can't see. Um, my my son was only a couple of years old, and and he actually saw someone that had recently passed. So I have an awareness of that, and I think perhaps that's to um, so that they can be eased into this life. I'm not sure, but um, it's almost like an amnesia that develops, and and possibly that may be because we're here. We've we've chosen. I believe, this life to experience whatever it is we're here to experience. And so we we have that temporary disconnection. Um, but I think the more, as I said, there's a, there has been a definite shift um, for whatever reason that humanity are becoming more and more aware. So we, we choose to come here to have our um, human experience, yet so many of us here now are seeking that spiritual experience while we're here. So it's, it is an interesting thing. So we're almost at the end with the warm-up questions. I have one more question for you, Danielle. What is your understanding of mental health and what do mentally and emotionally healthy people look like? It's a, that's a very good question. My understanding of mental health, I, I, I like to call it mental wellness. Um, I think that people, again, it's stri- I, I believe it's striving for peace. Right. I, I work, obviously work with people in mental health at the moment. And I find that there are so many people who are anxious and depressed and have autoimmune conditions. And so many of those things are caused through um, through stress, autoimmune, a lot of autoimmune is caused through stress, right. anxiety, um, depression. These sorts of things are caused through, I believe, people not being in the present moment as well. Okay. Um, depression is often based in the past where people are ruminating over the things that they could have done or should have done or could have said and should have said, um, the things that they can't change and a constant rumination over that. So again, not being present and anxiety is often in the other direction completely. You know, it's, it's where people are worrying about things that may happen, um, but they're worrying about it. they they're using, we have, our bodies have an amazing ability to respond to every thought we have chemically and physically. We know this, we can measure it. So when we have a thought, the body is bathed in chemicals directly related to that thought. So if if we consider that and, and take our um, consideration out to people who are 
not present, but rather out in the future worrying about things. There's the part of our mind that responds to that, the subconscious mind. It's 93% of what we do. The subconscious mind can't tell the difference between reality and imagination. So it will respond to those thoughts as though they're real. And thus, if we're having anxious thoughts, our body is bathed in anxious chemicals. So we feel the way we're thinking. And then when we feel the way we're thinking, we often have more of those anxious thoughts. And human beings are, are the only species in the world that can, you know, bring on um, stress mode or fight flight mode with their thoughts alone when there is no danger. So many of many of us now are living like that. And I, and I think that to me is, um, that is, you know, un, not mental wellness. That is um, mental unwellness, if you like. Um, and I think to be mentally well, we have to recognise again and be very aware of what our thoughts are doing and the impacts they're having on our bodies. And with all, just about every client I have, I discuss um, that the impact of our thoughts, that's something that we can do with our conscious mind. We can be aware and we can bring ourselves back into this present moment where none of that's happening, where all the traumas of the past and the would have, could have, should have aren't happening right now and there's nothing we can do about them anyway. You know, the past is the past. I, I like to think that we've, you know, we've all had things and done things that perhaps we wouldn't do again. Uh, and I think if we can take the, the knowledge and the wisdom from those things and bring that forward and leave the regret behind and leave the, the troubled ruminating behind because, you know, it serves no purpose, but bring the knowledge and the wisdom forward of of what, you know, what we've learnt from those experiences, then I think they're not wasted. And if we can bring ourselves back from that anxious future and bring ourselves into the present moment, understanding that our thoughts are powerful and if we, if we allow ourselves to sit in those anxious thoughts, they will have an impact on our body and we will, you know, we will be creating anxiety and unwellness in our lives. So, I think um, there is so much benefit to be gained from mindfulness and from just being aware. So awareness and mindfulness, I think, are the key to um, mental health. Yeah, I believe that too. And thank you for saying that again. <laughs> what are some of the greatest misconceptions about healing from your perspective? Misconceptions? Yeah, misconceptions, yeah. misunderstandings, yeah. Yeah. Um. So I think some of the greatest misconceptions about healing are from for many people that they put their faith, belief, knowing that they can heal in the hands of others. Nice. Um, I, I have come from that medical background, so I am I, I don't um, disregard it completely, but I think the first line to healing should always be self-healing. And, um, you know, even touching on the, the, the topic that we just said about mental well-being, if we, if we are living in stress, stress will impact every system of the body negatively. And I did mention before that, <clears throat> excuse me, autoimmune disorders are, you know, so far out of proportion. They've risen in such, with, you know, in such a way um, that's that's disproportionate to population growth, and the reason for that is that we are all 
a lot of the population is living in stress. And um, so, again, those same practices, the mindfulness and the awareness and practices like yoga and meditation to bring ourselves out of that stressful situation is very healing on the body. When we live in stress, we, you know, the, there's something, a term called an allostatic load that's put on our bodies and it's damaging. It's damaging to our hearts. It's damaging to our minds, our brains, every, as I said, every system in the body and, and predisposes to autoimmune issues. So, I think one of the greatest misconceptions about healing is that we have to hand it over to somebody else. I think, you know, we're responsible for our healing and I'm responsible for mine because I actually did, I was one of those people who got an autoimmune condition. So I am responsible for my healing now. I don't put my faith in um, others to heal me and I've had plenty of experience with comparing um, my body's responses to medications and my body's responses to um, the practices that I now do and true healing comes from within. Yeah, we are responsible for our own healing in our own thoughts. I love what you said earlier. We feel the way we think. True, so true. And there are so many practices, and you already mentioned mindfulness, breathing, that helps us with that. Wow. And that's also a reminder for myself. <laughs> Sometimes I rush a lot and I forget to breathe, right? So you wrote the book, your, I think this is the second book, right, Danielle? Or was the first one, The Ripples? The second, right? So the second book, The Ripples, What Lies Beyond. Talk to me about the inspiration and also the purpose of writing this book. Well, I wrote it because, I, as I've mentioned, I do work in mental health. And unfortunately, I'm, I'm in a rural area. That's not unfortunate. That's my choice and beautiful. But unfortunately, in my community here, it's just a smallish community, we have had um, teen suicides happening and there are many of, of them happening around the world, the suicide is becoming almost epidemic. There's World Health Authority tell us that 800,000 people every year take their life. And for every one of those, there are, I can't imagine how many people who attempt suicide and, um, and are not successful. So it's a real problem. And I wanted, and we, we spoke about um, mental health. So it's, I guess, the epitome of the complete opposite um, of, not, of mental unwellness, where people feel so, um, so hopeless that that's the choice they feel, the only choice they feel they have to stop their pain. Uh, so I wanted to raise awareness and I wanted to I wanted to join the voice that is becoming louder that uh, that is um, telling people that it's okay not to be okay and specifically for our children as well because I think the kids these days grow up in a world where it's all very edited it's all seemingly very perfect um, with social media and and all the editing tools available to them to crop photos and you know who knows what they do but nothing's real anymore it's all presented as perfect and we know that life isn't perfect and 
um, you know, I think I think it was one of my messages was very importantly to want to tell children and not just children but others as well. But the the story was written about a young teenager. Um, but to spread the message that it's okay to feel and it's okay to feel sad, it's okay to feel um, depressed, it's okay to feel devastated when something happens in your life that causes you to feel that way. You know, if someone dies, it's normal to feel to feel terrible. But unfortunately, these days, people who, um, it's almost like they're not allowed to grieve, they're given antidepressants for things when that are natural sadnesses. So I, I believe that the, one of the messages I wanted to send was that it's normal. It's, you know, emotions are normal, normal emotions, that is. Normal emotions are normal. Um, and to teach the children that it's to, that life is going to have bumps, but you'll get over it. And this moment, this moment that you might feel devastated because, you know, one of your friends has said or done something or, you know, worse than that, um, this is a moment in time and it will pass. And, you know, just to just to add to the voice, as I said, that um, that is that is saying that it's it's okay to feel this way, but there's help available. And it, and one of the main messages really was to say that it's okay to feel this way, but it's certainly not okay not to not to seek help, not to ask for help. And it, with you know, if you look at the statistics for it was because my book was about suicide. If you look at the statistics of suicide. Um, 75% of people who do kill themselves are men and men don't talk a lot often. Women are more likely to talk about their emotional health, whereas men sometimes won't. So it was it was to promote conversation and to um, promote the fact that there is help available and, and to also show the far-reaching impact of a single death, and and why I wrote it, what what stimulated me to write it was yes, the the things that were happening in my own society, but also um, I had an incident of suicide within my family that that had touched my sister, and um, so we it, it really struck me after that event we all gathered to support her, and um, you know to come together to remember this man and who had taken his life. And probably it would have been 48 hours after the event, there must have been a couple of hundred people that had all gathered together. And it really struck me then that if only he had known that he had all this support, if only, you know, he had reached out, um, I wonder what he would have chosen. So that was very much the theme of the book, that if you don't talk, you don't know. You know, people, that there are hundreds of people there and the, and these hundred people, 200 people, 300 people, were all impacted in very real ways by his death and those impacts continue on. I know certainly with my sister. So that started me thinking and then I, I surveyed my children because I knew what was going on in, in my area and we have four children and there isn't no, there was only one of the four who said that they hadn't been touched by suicide of a friend or, um, you know, someone that they knew of. And one, actually one of those children and her partner had been, the partner had been quite 
quite severely impacted where he had had several of his friends that had killed themselves. These are young men. So I really, I I mean, for me, that was just um, horrific. And I really wanted to do something about that. You mentioned normal emotions. So how can we distinguish normal emotions from harmful ones? I think that uh, if we can, if we can, go back to the mindfulness and accept. I think normal emotions, well, all emotions are normal. Um, Where they become harmful, I think, is when we are giving them, um, we're maybe doing the rumination uh, for longer perhaps than necessary. Some people... uh, when I say necessary, that it's it's not a measurable thing. Okay. Um, if we're talking about grief, people grieve at their own pace and there's no timeline for grief. But I think we should be moving in some way, moving through the emotion rather than being stuck in it and feeling that we're not moving. And if, you know, if we're in grief, it's going to be terrible. You're going to feel terrible, but that's a normal response to grief in that moment. But we shouldn't be feeling terrible in a in a year's time. Perhaps you will still feel very sad. It might still hurt. But then I think as long as we're moving, whether we move by baby steps or whether we move by, you know, a lot faster than that, is the individual response. And I think I think it's okay to um, just allow what is so with the mindfulness it's accepting without the judgment and just going well this is how I feel when we're um when we start to uh, the word pathologize is coming to me that's it's that's when things start to get a little bit not normal um that becomes a problem and I'm not I'm not really explaining that all that well um I just think that people are going to, if we're talking about grief, are going to grieve in their own way. Uh, As far as emotions, if we're talking about other things like anxiety and being anxious, um, well, these are things we can control. So then sitting in anxiety, I don't think it's helpful. Sitting in depression isn't helpful. Again, if these are states that we can choose to do something about. I mean, if we talk about depression, there are different types of depression. There's endogenous depression and there's a reactive depression. And endogenous depression is more of a chemical thing. Maybe there's a chemical imbalance in the brain, but I think that really only accounts for about 3% of of depressions. Um, A lot of other depressions are reactive depressions where people are very sad about something that's happened and probably rightly so. Um, it's more, you know, what we know now about just giving people antidepressants is that they don't, antidepressants per se on their own, there's a huge failure rate. There's a huge rebound rate when people go off them. Um, antidepressants, if they're used with, a, say, a psychotherapy where people are given tools and learn how to deal with, with their emotions, then the uh, relapse rate of depression is far less. So once again, that's that's telling us that it's the self-healing that is very important. So I think I think all all emotions are valid, but it's how long we sit in them and and whether we choose you know if we if we choose to just sit in them without movement. And you, we've heard the term being stuck. 
I think that's when things become um, unhealthy. There, there needs to be a movement through, and that's just my perspective, but um, it's it's not healthy to just sit and be stuck in that emotion. So self-help tools, do something about it, move forward, or just experience it initially without the judgment and just allow without the judgment. Because if someone's died and you're in grief, there's no escaping it, you know, right. and an antidepressant right. isn't going to change it. Antidepressant will just, it's a bit like, I I, I liken them in that situation to a bit like a Band-Aid. You put the Band-Aid over the wound, but that doesn't heal the wound. You're saying that, stating that all emotions are normal. What makes a difference is the movement, uh, which to me, it meant understanding this effort to understand our emotions. Yeah, that makes a huge difference. And I agree because movement's life, right? That is just... It's true. Um, so the ideas and concepts that we create and all the, um, like you mentioned, the pathologies kind of thinking that way, oh, I'm depressed. And then now there's fear involved. And then and then the ripple that you call like the effect, the ripple effect in the negative way, which we are just judging ourselves in our emotions, right? It makes a lot of sense to me. And thank you for saying that again. We need to hear that. It's interesting because... I keep saying that it's not just a new new information and wisdom being shared, but it's a reminder. It's important that we keep being reminded of these things. You say it is okay not to be okay sometimes, but it is never okay to not ask for help because you are precious beyond compare. You are loved and you are never alone. That is such a beautiful thing. Uh, wow. Thank you. That that was probably one of the main things too in the book that I wanted to convey was, and again, this is this connection to spirit, yeah. is that it for me, and you, you said the word knowing, and it, it is a knowing for right. me, right. A, um, a belief certainly, but a knowing that we do not walk this earth alone. And so in writing the book, we're connected to spirit, you know, and and however you believe or understand that uh, or whatever people think of that, and I think people have different names for it, and it really doesn't matter because I believe it's the same thing. Um, you know, some people say angels, some people say spirit guides, um, some people, you know, God, universe, but we are we are connected to the other side. And in my writing of the book, that was that was a a, a really big part of it. There was this ethereal, beautiful, loving presence that accompanied this young soul who had. Um, you know, taken, chosen to take his life, who was there to teach, but it was a loving presence. And the message was very much that you're not alone. You've never been alone. In those darkest moments, you were not alone. You know, I was there with you. And and for me, looking at what's going on in society, where again, I think there's a disconnection from a lot of people from spirit, um, a disconnection from religion, a disconnection from faith. And, uh, and however, again, you know, um, you can be spiritual, you can be religious, however it is that you you have that connection to the other side, 
I, I feel there's been, as society's moved on in, in a more, more materialistic way, there's there's almost been a disconnection to that. So, so many um, children are never taught any spirituality or any religion these days. So, it was it was part of that. In that, I wonder, you know, these these horrific events where children are taking their lives. I wonder if they knew that that was the message, if you knew that you're not alone in those darkest moments in your bedroom, wherever you are, when you feel like you've got nowhere to turn, if you only knew right beside you, I believe in those moments, you you know, you have your spirit guide, your God, your universal presence, your loving essence right there. Um, and, and that was a big part of the story where, um, and that that little excerpt that you read was that that beautiful soul essence trying to explain that to the to the young boy. Yeah, so that was that was a very important part of the book. It just resonated. I mean, just made me wanted to cry. I think I did, and then then I smiled, and then I laughed. It was like lots of emotions. Interesting how the body and the mind and the soul understood that. So I wonder what happens like to teenagers, because it is the case, right, Danielle, that most people that commit suicide, they are teenagers, they are young people. Well, it's actually the leading cause of death in the, I think, um, so young, from so young, from about 13, I believe, up until... Uh, I had the statistics, up until um, at least 25, it's the leading cause of death, which is, again, horrendous. Um, So, yes, a lot of young people, and as I said before, 75% are male, um, and that I can only attribute to the fact that a lot of men, as I said, don't tend to talk about their emotions and what they're going through. but yeah, young people. But it but it is also a very, you know, the proportion of people in the older age groups is also high. The proportion of people in indigenous groups is high. So yeah, there's there's lots of um, it, it, it's kind of across the board, but very much in the under twenty five year old male group, um, it's it's really really high. Talk to me for a moment about the connection between drug use or drug abuse and suicide. Yeah, I did. um, I covered that a little bit also in the book um, because when we take drugs uh, often, it affects the brain, it affects the receptors, um, the dopamine receptors and serotonin receptors in the brain where, you know, um, people who are indulging a lot, they get that rush, that high, and the dopamine that's released, there's too much of it. So the brain has to has to create new receptors to, to um, you know, manage all that dopamine and serotonin that's being released. And then, of course, in order to get, so this is how tolerance happens, in order to get that rush again over time, they need more and more and more of the drug. So the end effect of that means that they, you know, this they can't, they don't seem to get enjoyment out of normal things in life because they. it's like they've raised the bar in their brain for the serotonin and dopamine receptors. So it, it's like day-to-day life can never live up to that high so the effect of that is that life feels a little bit 
flat and life, you know, life feels a little bit um, depressing because the normal things that would normally bring joy don't bring joy anymore because the brain's had a reset and um, those things can't compare to the high of the drug. So it means that um, the kids who are indulging a lot in drugs, not only does it affect their brains in that way, but, but socially, of course, it affects them as well. And, um, and they can, they just, life becomes a bit sad and a bit depressing. And so, yeah, there is, there is definitely a connection to uh, suicide with, with excessive use of drugs and, of course, and certainly um, to um, depression and uh, the need for antidepressants and things like that, yeah. Would you say that this is uh, the use of drugs is an attempt to ease or to remove pain? That's what they're trying to do? I think um, perhaps not initially. Uh, well, in... Uh, The thing with using drugs at the moment, it's so, so widespread in very young children in so many schools, the best of schools. It, it doesn't discriminate. You know, it's not it's not a class thing. Um, it's across the board. It's very, very accepted by the younger kids these days. I, you know, again, I have um, my youngest daughter is 19, so um, she went to a very good school and I know that um, the proportion of children in that school who were taking serious drugs, um, dangerous drugs, was very high. And it's it's really frightening, to be honest, as to how widespread this problem is. So I, I think perhaps it doesn't begin uh, with trying to numb pain or I think it it's a social thing. It then later on becomes... Um, It just becomes something that adds to their uh, th that life, I guess, because of the effects that the, the drugs have ongoing. So then, then they need to numb the pain, or they need to get that high impacts on them because the joy can't be found in normal life. So I think I think it's kind of that vicious cycle. Um, but I would say and this is only from my perspective, that um, initially most of the kids are taking it just because it's something to do, just because, again, there's something missing. And, and maybe, again, that comes back to that spirituality. There's something missing in their lives, I guess, whether it's family connection because we've become so disconnected family-wise as well. Um, with You know, the extended family is no longer such a thing in Australia anyway, Um And divorce rates are high. So, you know, there's, I think the extended family used to be something that, that um, was very needed, you know, grandparents and things like that. And when kids don't have that and kids don't have spirituality, then they're searching for something. So they have their friends and they have their friendship groups and and um, they're searching for that high, that, that good feeling, feel good feeling in other ways. What are some of the most surprising discoveries you made, Danielle, when writing the book about suicide? Um, I was surprised at how widespread it was. I was yeah. surprised at how young the children were that were choosing this. I was surprised, I guess, by people's responses to it. Uh, it's interesting, you know, people would be interested, oh, you're writing another book. And um, 
what are you writing about? And if I said, I'm writing a book on suicide. Actually, it was interesting too because I myself had a bit of an issue saying that as to how it would be received. So even with myself, it was like, um, how do I put this? I'm writing a book on suicide because, and I'm quite comfortable talking about mental health and and the response to it, and I guess maybe that was what I was anticipating, the response to it was interesting because people were either, um, they they were shocked and they and that was the end of the conversation <laughs> oh, <wow. laughs> or they they were grateful yeah. and i think that depends on their own experiences and and the people right. that tended to be grateful mm. a lot of those people had had been impacted by suicide and they wanted the discussion they wanted people to know you know that this never goes away sometimes i find that with any death um but with the death of a child particularly People will um, will give you that compassion and will give you that um, support for a certain amount of time, and it's almost like it's time limited. And then people uh, decide, I'm not sure whether I want to raise this topic, or it gets a little bit awkward. You know, people don't want to bring it up because they don't want to upset the person, and in and so people just stop talking about it, except for I guess close friends. Um, and I think that's that's interesting in itself because, again, there's that expectation that grief is time limited perhaps, you know, and we've talked about it for a year or, you know, are we still talking about it? So, um, and I think if you, if you know of someone that has had a loss, I think it is important to ask them how they're going to not be afraid to raise the topic, you know, to support them because, Grief isn't time limited, and that mother, if it's a mother, or that you know child, if it's if it's a parent that has died, the grief doesn't go away. And to ask the question how they're going, I think, is really important. Yeah, that's an interesting point about grief that most people are uncomfortable with those deep emotions that arises during the grieving process and the um, the truth about life and death in all these um, deeper understandings. I think that's what it is. We are just uh, uncomfortable. Yeah, and I think people um, don't, maybe they don't have the, or feel they don't have the skills to to ask the right questions or to say the right thing. But I think just to say, um, even just to say, I'm still thinking, I'm still sending you love. I'm still thinking of you. I hope you're okay. You know, you don't, you, you can't, you don't have to say the right thing. You don't have to, you know, you don't have to stop their grief. You don't have to have the right answers. You just have to show love. So we're almost at the end. I love everything you do and say and think because it resonates with the heart and the soul. The opening of your book, you have this beautiful piece. I wonder what we would choose. Beautifully written too. And I had a question. I do have a question about that. Do you connect the idea of having choices to the idea of having control of outcomes? Most definitely, yeah, I do. I think there's there's part of me that somehow wonders whether, you know, things have a certain plan, but 
I also I also do believe in choices and and I believe that you know we certainly through our choices have a certain amount of control over our outcomes so we can choose to focus on in life in general we can choose to focus on what's good and we can or we can choose to focus on what's bad we can choose to focus on what's working what makes us happy what brings us joy or we can choose the opposite and i think if we're talking about mental health mental health a lot in in mental um if we're talking about you know poor mental health a lot of times people are focusing on what's not working what the problem is you know um what they don't like in a situation and it can be normal for us to do that because we are as a as a species we're negatively wired to to look out for what's not working because you know it it's potentially dangerous and you know to keep ourselves safe it's been we've been hardwired that way but we but we do have a choice and even genetically we're not predisposed there's a certain amount of even predetermined genetics that we have the ability to change now epigenetics tells us that we we have the ability to switch on genes and switch off genes according to you know what we do with our consciousness so um i think if we choose to recognize if we're if we're running old patterns and we're focusing on what's not working or um things things that are making us unhappy if we recognize that and again the awareness comes in there if we become aware of what we're thinking which is going to be causing us to feel certain things you know if we if we're focusing on um sad things we're going to be feeling sad if we're focusing on what's not working we're going to be feeling sad and not happy so we and you know if we recognize either what we're thinking or what we're feeling we have the ability to change and so then we can choose to to change the focus and i i often say to my clients you know your focus of attention is like a beam of light a torchlight that's illuminating whatever you're focusing on so as soon as you recognize that you're focusing on something that's not beneficial to you or not helpful or not making you feel good you have a choice we can change that and we can remove the focus from that and and point it in another direction and and seek out the things that are working and the things that you are happy about and sometimes that can be quite surprising because the more we look for that the more we find that so we can look for what's working what makes us happy what brings us joy what what you know we love in our lives and coming back to that gratitude and love again and um and it changes things for us it changes our external experience but it also changes our internal experience and then even if we choose to be peaceful and aware and then for some reason which life we can't control life something happens that's not pleasant then we still have the choice to see that experience with in with awareness so it is we do have a choice no matter what you're right yeah definitely definitely how we how we think and how we feel is always a choice because you know our state is is um state is something that we can change with our thoughts alone you know we can we can feel sad and and again i do this with my clients if they come in feeling sad and i do this with children because children are great using their imagination i'll get them to talk to me about their problem and imagine it and they feel sad and they feel things in their body and and then i'll get them to change the focus and think about a really happy event and suddenly their whole physiology changes they're smiling they feel something else in their body 
and all within a few seconds they've changed their state. So I think that we, we can choose our experience moment to moment. I love what you wrote in your book to, I don't know exactly where, but you said, never underestimate the power of a smile or a word of encouragement to change someone's day and possibly save someone's life. Yeah, yeah. That's powerful And, too, you know, I've, I've actually heard stories of people, survivors of suicide, who have actually said that, that uh, the person didn't know The person didn't know that that kind word or that that little quick phone call or you know that smile as they pass by saved their lives and yeah. and and I think if you can be anything in life, be kind, you know, be loving, be gentle because you do never you you just never know what someone else is going through, and that smile can save a life. So I have a few more questions for you, the ending questions. Before I ask them, would you like to add anything or read a passage in your book? Um, oh, read a passage. I love grace. I love what grace says. Um, let me see. Um, do you have a passage that you like? I love that opening, though, but I would love you to choose <laughs> Whatever comes to mind from okay. you. Okay. Well, no, wonderful. I will read the opening because I I wrote that especially naturally, yeah. um, with with it in mind because the book is called The Ripples: What Lies Beyond. So, what lies beyond is to do with our experience on the other side, but the ripples is very much on this side in in this life, and how an action impacts so many and just continues on. And that was, that was what I was hoping to get across in the book. So I wrote this little um, verse at the beginning and I called it, I wonder what we would choose. So if we could see the impact of our actions before we took them, I wonder what we would choose. If for a split second we had the precious gift of wisdom in that moment before we acted, I wonder what we would choose. If that split second in time spoke to us of how important, needed, and truly loved we really were, I wonder what we would choose. If that single pivotal moment of clarity was ours to observe, I wonder what we would choose. If we truly knew just how far the ripples of our actions would reach and how they would continue to erode away at all of those we leave behind, just like the relentless erosion of waves crashing onto a sandy shore long after the storm has passed. I wonder what we would choose. Oh. Yeah, that is um, no words for it. Thank you. So I have a few more questions for you. I'll ask you, how do you see courage and strength? Yeah, what are they to you? To me, it's interesting when you said those words, I sat up straight. I see, I see courage and strength and the word integrity comes to me as well um, because I see them as an integrity, as a, as a sense of self, an ideal of, or an idea, I suppose, of, of the self um, and to be all you can be unreservedly, without fear, 
you know, um, two emotions really in the world, fear and love, and I choose love. And I think when we when we stand in love, there's courage, there's, um, there's strength in that. Um, it's a knowing, it's a trust and an integrity I th- and and just a sense of self. Wow. Yeah, that's, uh, that's what I think. Oh, that's what I love. <laughs> when, <laughs> when we stand in love, yeah, yeah, there is courage, there is strength. Yeah, yes. and I'm holding my heart right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You're, yeah, you're such a beautiful soul, beautiful human being, beautiful everything. Thank you, Danielle. And I do have one last question for you. What are three things about life you wish everyone would know before they die, they lose the body? Three things. Well, one, you are never alone. That's a, that's one I wish they would know. You are never alone. Two, you are loved, completely loved. And three, you are a beautiful, eternal soul. And can I say four? Yeah, <laughs> sure. Five, six. <laughs> that you're worthy and and you're deserving and you're good enough. So many people feel all the opposites of those things. But I think, you know, if you can feel that you're, that you're deserving, that you're worthy and you're good enough, that you're loved, that you're an eternal soul, um, that they're healing things. And uh, they're the things I try to assist people to discover within themselves in my practice because many people who are traumatized don't feel those things. Um, they don't feel worthy. They don't feel good enough. Right. So I think in healing again comes that, um, that discovery, that, that self-actualization, that I deserve to be here I deserve to be in this world and life is precious and every day is a gift. Thank you so much again, Danielle, for your amazing light presence in everything that you do in the name of compassion and love. Thank you again. Where can we find more information about you, your books, products, services and future projects? Mm-hmm. Um, I ha- I'm on all the social media platforms I'm on um, Facebook, just Danielle Aitken, either counselling or author. I've got two sites, the same with Instagram. And my website is www.danielleaitkenauthor.com.au. Wonderful. I'll have those links on your podcast profile too. Thank you so much again, and we'll talk soon. We'll be in touch. Thank you so much, Valeria. It's an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye, Danielle. Thank you for listening. To learn more about Danielle Aiken and her work, please visit danielleakenauthor.com.au. To learn more about this podcast, please visit fitforjoy.org slash podcast. Thank you again for listening and bye for now.